Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hi, yogis and meditators, Jessica here. And I just want to share a quick announcement from the Atman Yoga School before we jump into this week's episode. Our upcoming Restore and Yoga Nidra teacher training in Oslo, Norway in October is almost completely booked out. We have about one or two spots left. So if you're really keen to join us, send me an email at hello at atmanyogaschool.com to claim your spot. And if you aren't able to get a spot or make this round of the training, then we have two more coming up in 2020. So you can mark your calendars. We'll be offering this training in Oslo, Norway. March 27th through 29th, and in Bergen, Norway, May 22nd through 24th. These trainings are really popular. They sell out really quickly. So if you do want to join us, make sure that you send us an email and get your spot saved. All right. For this week's episode, we also have a sponsor. So I'd like to give a shout out to Cocomot. Cocomot makes these amazing mattresses and beds, and they manufacture high quality beds, which are all non-metal, non-toxic, hypoallergenic, and handcrafted using 100% natural materials and environmentally friendly manufacturing methods. So this is a company that as a yogi, I can totally totally get behind. Uh, there's no flame retardants, there's no extra chemicals, there's no off-gassing. And when you consider how much of your life is spent in bed, it makes sense to prioritize and make sure that you're buying high quality products to support you in getting the best sleep that you can. I am a huge sleep junkie. I love to sleep. I sleep a lot. And my husband and I just got one of these beds and I can honestly tell you we are in love. It's oh, so magical to go to bed and sleep so well and wake up feeling refreshed and ready for the day. So go check them out if you're interested. Kokomat Norway, www.kokomat.no. All right, that's it. That's all. Time to tune in as I chat with my friend Lindsay Van, Olympian and just all around amazing, inspirational person. So there we go. Hello and welcome to the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm Jessica and this week uh, I took a little bit of a detour with uh, the guest I invited on the show. It is a dear friend of mine and uh, an Olympic athlete who has a very compelling and interesting story. So I want to welcome on Lindsay Van. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy that we can connect and, and yeah, do this together. Cause you know, we've spent a lot of time, uh, talking about things and, you know, in the context of a friendship. And so it's really cool to now be able to kind of bring that to a wider audience, just in terms of how we communicate and, and stuff. So it's fun. It's so fun. I love getting to have friends on my podcast. Yeah, it is fun. Yeah. So the reason, well, actually, do you want to give an introduction or do you want me to give an introduction? Your, your, your cliff note, your elevator speech of kind of who you are and how people would know you. I will let you do it. <laughs> okay. I know. I know. You hate always kind of 
having to be forced to be in the spotlight, even though you're really good at it. Um, well, you are known for, among many things, but publicly you are known for being uh, the first female world champion of ski jumping. And where was that in? Where, uh, Liebrecht, Czech Republic. I was going to say Czech Republic. Yeah. In 2009, which was a really big deal. And I remember we were all celebrating a lot, uh, that victory. And then you also would be known for um, kind of spearheading or being <laughs> forced to spearhead the uh, lawsuit against the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, for denying women ski jumpers uh, their inclusion in the Olympics. And that dragged on for many, many years. And then finally, you competed in the Olympics in 2014. So that right. was... That was a lot, a lot. And for all of us who are friends and kind of on the sidelines and supporting you guys, um, there were a lot of ups and downs with that experience. And it was so frustrating and it was so um, awful to have setback after setback and see the discrimination and everything that happened in that experience. Um, and then when did you officially retire from ski jumping? I can't remember. I officially retired in 2015. I um, actually, my last jump was in 2014, but I stayed on the U.S. ski team for another year so I could get the medical benefits. I had to have some surgeries. And uh, so I officially retired in, I think it was October of 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and that was one of the things, I mean, you have had so many injuries over the years and continue to have problems from from some of those injuries and what are some of the main injuries that you've dealt with from your career as a ski jumper uh a lot of uh, knee injuries I've had nine knee surgeries uh mostly cartilage damage um only one ACL so that was good uh meniscus stuff just a lot of overuse of my knees and yeah, and broken back, you know, all the things. All the things, I know. And, you know, it's amazing to me because you're always so humble about your accomplishments and always deflect a lot of compliments and when people are really cheering you on and, and acknowledging your hard work and everything. And I don't think I've ever told you that before, that I've always really admired you and, um you know, seeing that struggle and that perseverance and the dedication that you had to your sport. And I mean, you, you left your family and you came out West to start training when you were nine. Uh, my parents moved to Park City, Utah when I was four and I started ski jumping when I was seven. And then I actually moved back East to Lake Placid, New York when I was 13 to 16 and lived away from my family and then moved back to Park City when I was uh, uh, almost 17. Okay. So I had the timeline totally wrong. Um, no, no, you're good. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Well, time just moves on, you know, when for us. Um, so all of that was, that was like the life that you knew was ski jumping and you excelled at it and you were a leader within that community. And you know, I can imagine then transitioning out of that. There have been a lot of different struggles and different 
for any athlete, I'm sure, especially an Olympic caliber athlete where you're like, okay, what next? Now that the Olympics are over, now that my professional athletic career is over, what next? And the reason I, I kind of am painting this picture is because of the real topic that I want to talk with you about and kind of just letting listeners know your story and how dedicated and evolving your life was towards this goal of ski jumping. Because in the middle of your ski jumping career, you had a roommate in Park City and he had a kind of an interesting story. Do you want to share Sean's story? Yeah, um, I met Sean. I don't even remember how I met him, but we connected and he was um, born in Nigeria and moved to the United States with his mother. Um, and he was looking to be the first Winter Olympian for Nigeria and had moved out for uh, to Park City to start training in skeleton. Uh, literally the week he moved out here, he was diagnosed with leukemia and needed a bone marrow transplant and was uh, unable to find a bone marrow donor. Um, not a lot of uh, minorities were in the registry to donate bone marrow. And he ended up uh, not being able to find a bone marrow donor, but he was able to find a stem cord blood donor from an umbilical cord um, from a birth. and. Um, he was able to get his donor like that and he's now in remission and has been for whew, I don't even know now what nine years so probably yeah probably about nine years yeah sounds about right yeah so he needed so this guy moves in the house and uh he's just diagnosed with cancer and um you know I'm training to be an athlete and he's trying to do the same and it just really put into perspective uh, my life and his life and his struggles. And I mean, I couldn't help. I, I mean, there wasn't much I could do for him. I couldn't help him. I wasn't a match for him seeing that he was a black man and I'm a white female. And I felt kind of powerless. And the only thing I, I asked him, like, what can I do? He said, well, you can sign up to be a bone marrow donor for somebody else on the registry. So I signed up thinking, okay, well, I can do that. I'll probably never be a donor. And I remember and that. Then, yeah, when everybody's like, oh, we can sign up and yeah. Yeah, and then so I signed up and I don't know, it must have been like a year and a half later I got a call and I was a perfect match for somebody and wondering if I could uh, if I could donate. And I mean, it wasn't a question in my mind. I said, absolutely, um, because – because I, I saw his struggle and him trying to find a, um, a donor. And it was, it was hard to watch that, to see somebody so powerless in, in, in that way. So when, when somebody asked me if I could do it, it was uh, absolutely because I'd want someone to do it for me or one of my family members. And so without thinking about it, I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm going to do that for somebody. Yeah. How did they determine, like, what are the factors that create a match do you so was it another female or it just was somebody who was caucasian or what are the factors that it was uh i would have to look it up again but i know there's like a 10 out of 10 matching system but basically you need to be you know the same race so i ended up donating to like a 
later 50s white male. And that's about all I knew about him. Mm. And so what, first of all, I want to talk about the process. And then second of all, I want to talk about the timing within your life. So you got the phone call, you said yes, what happened next? You have to go through all this testing, um, just to make sure you are a correct match. So like some more in-depth blood testing, your blood type and all that. Um, and then you got to go through some physical testing, make sure you're healthy enough to donate. And I had to go out to San Francisco to see some doctors there to, to do it. And then I actually donated in San Francisco. Um, it was one of the center, well, the closest center to Salt Lake City. Um, and so the, the, the process is, it's, it's, they don't take bone marrow from the bone very often anymore what they do now is they give you a drug to boost your stem cell production uh, they give you five injections over five days and it has your bones produce new stem cells so the flat bones so your your hips your ribs um produce more of these stem cells and you get a little sore kind of like achy like you had the flu or something but but without feeling sick. So you have, you have uh, these injections, you have all these new stem cells floating around and you go to this donation center and they stick a needle in each arm and they take out, uh, they filter the blood and take out uh, the stem cells, uh, the white blood cells, and then they give you back your red blood cells in the other arm. <laughs> and, it's, and you do that over two days for them to take their sample First time, I actually donated twice. The first time, it took, they did it over two days. And the second time, I was able to do it in one day. And then you're on your way. And you really don't feel anything after that. So it's a pretty easy donation. Um, considering what it does for someone, uh, I think a lot of people have the misconception that they actually have to, you have to go into surgery and they have to harvest the bone marrow from your hip like they used to do, but that is not the case anymore. It's a much more simple process. And not a lot of people know that now. And it would be awesome if more people did do it because it's, it's an easy process to save somebody's life. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's so many things that I think come up from that. Like, you know, in, in your mind, it's just a, it's a yes, an absolute yes. And I can see how other people could be like, well, I'd love to save a life, but dot, 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 I'm too busy. I can't travel. I can't blah, 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 take the time off of work. I can't, like, I can see there being a lot of excuses to wanting to be a donor. And I think being a donor of any kind, but specifically what you did, because it sounds like, so five days there, two days to donate. And then, so seven days, were you there longer or seven days? And then you came home. Um, I actually was able to have the injections here in Utah. Oh, uh, somebody just came to my house, injected me and then left. And then I just had to go to San Francisco, um, for the donation and also for the, like the initial like workup to see if I was a, a good match. Mm -hmm. And who paid for that? Uh, the, uh, be the match, uh, which is the organization that does a lot of the bone marrow donor. They run the registry here in the United States, actually, I think across the world. So yeah, they have donations that fund that and they pay for everything and your travel and whatnot. Mm. 
And then when you got home after giving the donations, how did you feel? Uh, you know, I, I didn't really feel, I felt fine. I didn't really notice much at all, but all the extra stem cells that your body made, you get to keep, which was kind of nice. It kind of went and, uh, fixed all the little injuries that I did have, uh, temporarily. I mean, it's not specific. Like a lot of the stem cell therapy is now like site specific, but, um, overall I felt, uh, pretty good a few months later, like really good. That's awesome. So this was in 2011 that you did this? The first time? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And where, what was going on outside of donations in your life in 2011? Well, I had won the Ski Jumping World Championships in 2009. And the next, uh, the next, World Championships were in 2011, and I was a reigning world champion. And they had called me just before I was uh, about a, a month before I was supposed to leave to go to world championships. And it was, you know, kind of odd timing, but uh, they were wondering because it's very time sensitive for the donor mm-hmm. or for the, the person receiving the donation. Um, because they're going through chemotherapy and all that stuff to kill their immune system. And when they're at, you know, kind of their lowest, the sickest, that's when they need your donation. So it wasn't like a fine date set, set in stone. So they're like, okay, whenever we call you, we need you to, you know, get over here and, uh, donate bone marrow. And I'm like, okay. Uh, there's a good chance, there's, there's a good chance I could miss the world championships. And, um, you know, that wasn't my first choice, but at the same time, I knew it was, um, a choice that I had made already and I would want someone to do that for me. And, and I thought it was a very, it would be a very selfish thing. Like, sorry, I gotta go ski jump. I can't save your life today. And uh, it seemed it was a very easy decision for me to just be like, yeah, okay. If he needs it, then I will be there. Then, um, it happened that I was, I was able to compete in the world championships and I, I got home and I think donated that next week, uh, when they needed me, but, um, it could have been, I could, I could have missed the world championships, but you know, that's how things go. And I, I would want someone to do that for me or my family member and I would be pissed if somebody gave me the excuse, no, I got to go, I got to go play in this circus, uh, jump off a mountain or something. I don't know. I think life, life is a lot higher on the priority list than uh, a sport. Yeah. And I mean, it's so amazing to hear you say that because I think a lot of people would understand if you had said no. Um, I think actually there were probably some people who were really surprised you said yes, given the timing within your life and and the fact that you have been working towards these goals of becoming an Olympic ski jumper since you were little and, you know, being the reigning world champion and going back to the world championships to defend your title. Like that's pretty serious when your career, your livelihood, everything you know and do is ski jumping and you're a leader in that sport. And so, to you, it's a no-brainer, but I think to many people, they're like, well, that's a little risky. <laughs> did you ever have anybody say anything to you like, mm, are you sure about that? Like, what did your coaches think? 
Oh, uh, coaches were supportive. I definitely had some people go, there's no way I would do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I had some, some interesting feedback. Like, why would you do that? Why would you do that at the most important time in your career? And I said, well, I don't, I don't pick the time. I don't get to pick a time when this guy's dying or when, if I can save him or if I can help him, it, it, it wasn't my choice. It was something I signed up for, something I agreed to. And if I can help somebody, it was more important than um, the sport to me. It just, sport is sport. It's a game. It's a high level game, but it's not everything. Yeah. Uh, there, I, I, there's more priorities than, than just sport. And I was able to see that. And Hopefully the people that, you know, doubted me saw that um, maybe they should reconsider their priorities and, you know, put something else in front of them. Um, I know I always felt better when I was doing something for a bigger cause or something other than just myself. Um, it was much more meaningful for me when, when I could do it for something other than just me. Yeah, that's so powerful. What, you know, it's all that comes to mind for me is, is the yoga of humanity. And when we are able to kind of allow our ego to get out of the way a little bit so that perhaps we can see a bigger picture and see the interconnectedness of all beings. And that I think is so, so inspiring. And that's why your story is so profound is because it's this juxtaposition of like this very crucial point in your career as a, an elite athlete. And then also being like, wait a minute, there's not even a, a, a hint of hesitation here because another human's in need. I have the ability to help them. Of course, I'm going to do that. And so I think to me, you know, that's yoga, like pure and simple period, end of sentence. And, you know, you and I have a, we share a love of yoga and asana and meditation uh, which I want to talk about in a second also, but what do you think, was your worldview already shaped before you met Sean and you got on the registry and all of this stuff happened? Or do you think it continued to evolve over the course of just growing up? Like when, when do you think that kind of recognition and appreciation for others and helping others and being of service developed for you? Uh, I think it's forever evolving. I think we're always trying to grow and, you know, do our best. And, you know, I, I started traveling internationally at a very young age and, uh, you know, learned a lot uh, through my experiences of traveling the world. And uh, when you boil it down, it's you seem you're a very small being in this large world and we're a community and, um, you got to help people and people help you. And, you know, I had a lot of support around me and, you know, there's times when you got, you have to give back and, and um, it feels good. It feels, it's the right thing to do. It's um, you know, your moral compass. Like it's, you know, one of those things that I didn't question is, is just what you have to do. Yeah. And I, I guess that was set in from a young age, but, you know, through that whole process, it was set in more. And I think we're 
always continuing to evolve and change and learn and experience new things. And I think that's important because once we stop learning, you know, you know, time's up. <laughs> Got to so continue true. to evolve and be better people. Yeah, I agree. What do you think um, your takeaway or any of your lessons were from that experience? Or I guess, or uh, how- oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I, from that experience, I think it's just, uh, I, you know, think of other people as well. I mean, when you're doing something for someone else, I think it's oftentimes easier for somebody to do something for someone else and not just themselves. Um, sometimes it's easier to stand up for your friend or a group of people and it's easier to fight, uh, like that. And it, it's when it's just, uh, about you, it's, it's not as meaningful. Mm, I love that. Well, and then a parallel to this during the same time period, I mean, you're in the middle of all these court battles with the IOC, the, the international Olympic committee. What do you think those two things, did they impact one another? Did you keep them separate? Did going through the experience of being a bone marrow donor give you a little extra fuel for the fire to fight for equality of women within the Olympics? Or were they totally separate in your mind? I mean, I don't see them as totally separate. I think it's all kind of connected is, you know, a lot of the things fighting for equality in the Olympics and in women's ski jumping was something I had been doing. But like I said, it was easier because I, I had a group of people that I was doing it for and doing it with. I wasn't, it wasn't just me. So that made it easier to be able to stand up for a group and say, these people need, need help. And I'm going to do my best to, to make my mark to help other athletes. And if, if I'm in the position that I can do something or um, help the process, then I was going to do it. And when, when I took myself out of it and say, like my younger teammate, Sarah Hendrickson, she's 10 years younger than me. And I said, Oh, if I can't have the opportunity, I want her to have the opportunity. And it was a lot uh, easier for me uh, to stand up for somebody else than it was just for my own selfish needs. Yeah, I get that. And you know, I remember back to that time and we would talk about it so much and it was, it was heavy. There was a lot going on over the years with that battle. And, um, you know, you had to go to Canada a lot and working with all the different lawyers and all the meetings and everything. And I think, you know, that's one thing I really remember you saying over and over, well, it's not about me. It's about the future generations. And, you know, because you had won the, the first ever, world championships for women, you kind of were like forced into the spotlight a little bit and became like the de facto leader or um, spokesperson for the sport and trying to create equality. What do you, (laughs) I know this is a loaded question. Uh, What would you say about that experience overall going through fighting the IOC and the ups and downs and and not being allowed to compete when you were more qualified than many of the men competing oh that is a loaded question (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know it's uh everything happens I think for a reason and it's not like I wanted to be a leader or 
you know, stuck out in the middle to fight for a sport. It happened like that. And I had to take the opportunity that I was given or, you know, to stick out for my sport and uh, uh, push the sport forward. And it's not always comfortable. And I guess I really learned it's okay to be uncomfortable. And if you're uncomfortable, you're growing. If you're comfortable, it's, you're not moving forward. And so I guess my motto became be comfortable being uncomfortable because that's the way it's going to be. And when I was able to understand that, that that was okay. The uncomfortable feeling is okay. You're learning, you're growing through the experience. Nobody knows how to do that. It, it, it comes with just doing it. And um, there's no handbook for it. You just kind of got to go. And you know, try to make the most of every opportunity that I was given and uh, make it better for me and the sport and the people after me. And it kind of just uh, fell in place. And that's how I, I don't know. It was, uh, looking back now, I'm glad I was given that opportunity and I was glad I was able to do what I was able to do. But now looking back, it was intense. It was, it was really intense all the time. It's, it was exhausting. Um, I think I'm still tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can imagine. I mean, it was a lot of emotions for a really long time. And, you know, when you're the wronged party, it's especially exhausting when you're like, wait a minute, this isn't right. And you've proven yourself and you've met every, you know, barrier they put in the way or you've, you've jumped through every hoop and you've, you know, shown yourself to be quote unquote worthy, and then you're still being shut down. And, you know, I think that's very specific to your and the other women's experience with the IOC. But I think extrapolating from that, it's also true in life in general, you know, life isn't always fair. And the question then becomes like, okay, well, when we encounter situations that are unfair in life, how do we handle them? Like, what is our default? Like, how do we process emotion? How do we create um, healthy routines and rituals and habits for ourselves to to help us handle that uncomfort or discomfort that you're talking about? What do yeah, you... I mean, you got to be a mentally strong person. And I think I learned that from a very young age. I learned, you know, how to control my mind and arousal level and imagery and meditation starting from when I was about 12 years old. And it was something I always worked on because, you know, being a highly competitive athlete, you have to be on it really intense times and you have to do, you have to be able to perform in those very intense times. So like, I mean, yoga, breath work, uh, controlling your emotions and your mind, it, it's, uh, it started from a very young age for me, but it was, the most helpful thing I learned is, you know, being able to calm yourself down, think about things rationally and be able to dissect the little pieces of what it actually is. And I mean, it's something I worked on every single day from when I was 12 years old and until the end of my career. Well, I mean, it continues after that, but it's, it's in a different way, a less intense way. I don't know. Yeah. What do you, when you were at the height of your career, for example, 
what were some examples of the meditation techniques or visualization techniques or uh, mind control techniques that you would use to help yourself train? I did a lot of imagery. Uh, so, I mean, that took a long time for me to learn, for me to do it effectively, because you're you're basically imagining yourself doing something um, to perfection. And your mind will play tricks on you, and uh, you'll start seeing yourself crashing or doing something wrong or horrible. So you got to learn how to, you know, shut that out and... Um, it was interesting because it became a very powerful tool for me that I was, I was able to kind of make changes off the ski jump, but in my mind, like I already knew how to do it. Um, and it was very powerful for me because, you know, I, I had the confidence that I could do it like that. And it's, it, it's not an easy skill to learn. I mean, it, like I literally, you know, at the beginning would put on the same soundtrack for probably 12 years and go through the same process and get my myself into this um, area of my mind where I could control and change things. Um, so that was really cool to, to be able to do that. And it was hard, but it works and it works well. And also at a, at a high level of competing just being able to calm yourself down to like I did my best when I was like the most calm and happy so I you know you you get like pumped up for a competition but I'd have to like bring myself down to a much lower level so I I could focus on the technical aspects of what I was trying to do mm. how much of a role did your breath play in that oh <laughs> huge uh, everything. That's everything. Being able to breathe and, you know, get that oxygen into your blood so you you can calm down. So you're not having those shallow kind of anxiety breaths. Those uh, those don't help anything. Your mind doesn't work at all in, 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 in that sense. I mean, for me, being an athlete, it didn't work to be um, that aroused. So the breath work, helped help me be able to relax and get in a more focused state where it wasn't um like fight or flight yeah at all times what did how did you learn that like was it your coaches teaching you or did they bring in experts or a little bit of both uh we we started working with a sports psychologist uh you know I was 11 or 12 years old and it immediately started out with, yeah, meditation, breathing, laying on your back, you know, trying to focus and uh, and imagine things. And when you start this at, at, at that kind of age, I mean, your brain is all over the place. Um, and I really wanted to make it work. So I spent a lot of time on my own doing the same thing. And and it did work. But it it's like everything. If you got you to gotta set a time set aside time for it to work. you got to practice it. If you don't practice it, it's, it's you can't just pick it one day and think it's going to work. Mm. So true. So true. Yeah. All of these practices are about patience and showing up. And, um, you know, we, 
in yoga, we read one of our texts is the Yoga Sutras, and they give us this guide, this blueprint to how to practice yoga. And that's uh, one of the things that the sutras say is that in order for it to be a practice, there's a couple of things that have to be in place. You have to want it to be a practice. You have to do it with consistency, and you have to do it with like an actual effort. And I think, you know, in today's age where everything's like, what do they call that? Um, that where you get everything, you want it now and you want it fast and you want like it. Instant gratification. Yeah. And it's not that. <laughs> yeah. No, any practice of yoga or of controlling the body and then ultimately controlling the mind, it takes time and practice and effort and everything that you're saying. And I think it's so good to hear that from you in particular, you know, you're a badass athlete and you, I mean, a lot of people might not even know that about you too, that when we would free ski, you were like the strongest, the fastest, <laughs> in addition to being so good at ski jumping. And it was like, God, oh, she's so good at everything. And you're biking every day in Park City. And, um, you know, even though you have a lot of injuries and a lot of things um, that you have to work with within your body, it's a testament to other people of like, oh, okay, this can work, but you have to do it. And there's no easy way. There's no quick fix. No, there's no easy way. Everything takes time and it takes time for your brain, your body um, to get in sync with, with each other and know how it works. I mean, like I said, I started when I was young and I don't think I was able to use it to my benefit for at least 10 years. And when I did, I was like, oh, I have a superpower that nobody else, well, maybe other people had it, but I, I felt like it was a superpower. Were your other teammates doing, I mean, they had to have been doing some of the same stuff. Yeah, they they did some similar stuff. I, I don't know about how much, I mean, that's not something we really talked about at that level. It was kind of more of an individual thing and at, at that level. At the elite level? Yeah. Really? Oh, I find that surprising. Yeah. Even with even with yeah, your teammates, think, you wouldn't share that information like, "Oh, this is really working for me. I love it," or it just was something really personal and private. To me, it was personal and private because I mean, you can only tell somebody so much, and and, and they have to do it for themselves. So each each person does their own thing, and I guess at that level, it was more of a personal thing and how you accomplished that when you did it. It wasn't like a team thing. Um, we, we didn't talk about it a whole lot. Um, I talked about it more with my coaches because, uh, I don't know, I felt like they need to know what I was doing and how I was kind of wired and how I was trying to do things. Mm. And now, now you're back in kind of the public sector and you work in real estate in Park City and have kind of moved on from being a professional athlete. Do you still do any of those meditation techniques or breathing techniques? Oh, yeah. All the time because uh, real estate is a very, um, it's an intense field. And there's a lot of emotion involved, a lot of money being spent, and things can go wrong pretty easily. So um, it has helped me a lot in my career because I'm able to stay calm and rational and, and make those you know, take time to make decisions that need time. Or if I need to make a fast decision, I, f I feel like I'm able to get myself in the right mindset to do so. 
And I think a lot of, uh, I see a lot of other people I work with that just get totally involved in the emotion and out of control and, and are unable to make um, important decisions with a rational, with a rational mind mindset. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I, I worked in real estate law when I lived in Aspen, <laughs> Colorado. So I know. Wow, that's intense. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah that was that was intense, man. Don't miss it. But sure learned a lot. Um, yeah, well, and then Austin, I know you you're currently dealing with a continued knee injury, but are you practicing very much asana or stretching or anything like that? Yes. Um, I definitely stretch or I, I mean, it's yoga, but I call it stretching, uh, every day after I get off my bike and also when I'm feeling super anxious or just overwhelmed, if I just literally, I, I have my yoga mat here, I put it down in my living room and I just, Half the time, I just just need to lay there, mm-hmm. just breathe, uh, just to get back to back to zero is what I call it, um, like a reset. And I find myself doing that often because, you know, I get now that I'm not an athlete, I'm not setting a, you know, time aside to do it, and I realize I have to do this now. Like I, I just got to lay down in shavasana and and chill here. And sometimes it'll be an hour or so, sometimes only a couple minutes. Um, but it's definitely something, what I learned as an athlete is still very useful in my life. You know, I see a lot of other people doing other things, like drinking and all these other things, but I think uh, we can control ourselves better uh, when we just take the time to actually you know, turn off all the media, turn off your phone and just chill. Just be with yourself, breathe, feel your body and, you know, reset back to zero. And it's been super important for me to do that, especially in in a new career, you know, people buying multi-million dollar properties. It's intense. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And it's, I love that you said too, like sometimes it's just laying down on your mat for a few minutes. Because it can be as simple as that. That is yoga. And the more that we can repeat that message, I think is is amazing because some people get it up in their mind like, oh my God, it has to be an hour of asana and half an hour of pranayama and half an hour of seated silent meditation. And it's like, no. And that's one of the reasons I created this podcast is to really talk about the different ways in which people practice yoga and meditation. And it's very individual and it's basically whatever you can do to calm your mind. That's it. That's all. Absolutely. And I, I find it all the time. I'll be driving. And I'm all anxious. I got to get somewhere. And then it's just like, okay, turn off the radio. Just breathe. Take deep breaths, breathe and calm yourself down. So you can have some, that's my issue. I, I get anxious. I get going really fast and I just, and I can't think straight like that. I need to calm myself down so I can have some rational thought or else it's just like flying off the handle. You're making stupid decisions and you know, I can't make stupid decisions. I'm pe- helping people buy <laughs> properties, the biggest investment of their life. And it's, it's, you got to be in the right frame of mind to do that. Mm. 
Oh, well, Lindsay, I am so glad that we got to catch up and thank you for sharing about your experiences. And it's, you know, I think your story is so interesting and very inspirational. And, um, you know, a lot of my Norwegian listeners, they're probably familiar with your name. Uh, You've been here many, many times. And I hope you come back and visit soon. Yes, I love Norway. Yes. And I need some brown cheese. And <laughs> Although the whole food definitely whole food sells the brunost, you know. Yeah, but it's it's <laughs> not I don't yeah, no, it's not the same. I know. I know. Well, anytime you want to come visit. I will definitely be back. Good. Good. And hopefully I'll see you in Salt Lake sometime too. But um Yeah. Thank you so much and have an awesome day. Oh, thanks. I appreciate you having me. You too. Yeah, bye-bye.